Welcome to Why We Collect, a podcast by Bright Archives. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm David Bernabo. Today, we are interviewing Liz Rudnick. My name is Liz Rudnick. I am a Pittsburgh-based artist and curator, uh, currently working and living in the East End. Liz is also the Director of Development and Communications at Kelly Strayhorn Theatre. We talk with Liz about the things she collects and what it means to be a collector. I collect paper ephemera from exhibitions and places I visited. I go to a lot of vintage stores, so I'll collect business cards from places. I collect uh, mostly two-dimensional artwork from uh, friends and artists I admire. I collect socks out of necessity because I'm constantly losing them. And I somehow can't get rid of the ones that may someday find their partner again. And we start with the idea of artist archives. In preparation for coming here, I've been thinking about the archive and how artists think of archives and how regular folks think of archives and I was talking to my little sister. Her argument was that everyone understands the importance of an archive. They understand it viscerally as soon as their phone dies, and they remember that they hadn't backed up their photos in the last 16 months. You know, having had that experience right now, I have, I checked this morning, 36,320 photos on my phone. Um, And it's funny because my phone will date photos. So I have like a funny photo of Teddy Roosevelt on a moose that is, you know, dated from the period, even though it entered my phone from Google in like 2017. You know, my phone timeline goes back to like the late 1800s, which is always super funny to think about, (laughs) given where photography was at the time. But yeah, I think artists even more so understand what that impulse to collect and archive and preserve feels like, even when we don't have a way to articulate the importance or like the reasoning around that gesture. We take experiences and then we turn them into objects or, you know, ephemeral moments, sounds and images. And that that process is an archival process. I love that phrase, taking experiences and turning them into objects. That's really powerful. I love that. It's something everybody does, um, but it's just a question of trying to extend it to a moment or to a community or to like tie it in the web to other folks around you that I think artists maybe take it a little bit further. Some folks have a tentative or, or strange relationship to the idea of describing themselves as collectors. And I've always been really comfortable with the idea of describing myself as a collector, especially of art. I started collecting art in my undergraduate program where I would trade folks art books that I thought that they could use for like pieces. 
I still collect art monographs. And if I met someone in school or was building a relationship with someone whose artwork I wanted to collect, I would say, hey, like, here's an Albert Olin monograph. Like, I'll trade you for that painting. I think you should have this. And <laughs> but that's so interesting because I feel like we've heard from other folks, they, they have an aversion to the idea of a collector because it implies kind of an end of life for an object, right? It's it's more about preserving things for the long term than making something new. But it sounds like you don't quite see it that way. What So what's your definition of like collector or collecting? Yeah, to my collection is like a living thing. It's like, it's um, it's very much like a, like a photo album, for example. It's like, okay, this is a moment. This is a moment in someone's practice. And my little sister is a biomedical engineer, but she also has a ceramics practice. Um, and so she's been doing it now for, I think, nine or 10 years. And I have one mug from every series that she's done. So I have these like wonderful, goopy, wobbly, kind of really thick, um, bad, you know, for, for lack of a better word, sorry, Catherine, mugs from the beginning. And then, you know, now to they're kind of at quite a professional level. But yeah, so it's like they're like snapshots. Is there an aspect of um, hoarding to that? I don't know about you guys, but I grew up with uh, one parent who um, subscribes to the philosophy of kind of fewer, better things and who focuses on utility and the aesthetic. And if you don't like something anymore, you can let it go. Um, And my other parent has a really hard time getting rid of stuff. There's especially if it has a connection to anyone they've like loved or cared for in the past, even if that care is passing. So for example, um, like a comb from a girlfriend from the seventies, you know, kind of thing. Like it's really, it's, (laughs) it's really difficult. And, and I think that I've grown up with a, a spliced, uh, philosophy around, around collecting. So for example, I am really, involved with keeping my family photo archive. Like I mentioned the photos in my phone, I keep a photo archive on my computer of previous um, images that I've liked, even from the internet, even things I haven't taken. But I need to keep that email list at zero. Like I need it to not accumulate whatsoever and to get rid of even somewhat important conversations sometimes. Um, I'm interested in yeah your relationships to, to that. I can speak for myself coming from perspective as like an archivist, having worked in that field. And for me, kind of hoarding and archive are, are two separate things. Archive implies some sort of selection process. You've got certain criteria that you're looking for and you, you know, kind of work that into the collection based on whatever that is. And that, you know, that can vary widely depending on the organization or the individual. Um, it could be historical significance. It could be design. It could be, you know, time period, anything. But uh, a lot of folks, I think, I've had this happen to me personally too. So they be like, oh, you guys just save everything, right? Referring to archivists. It's actually not true. We tend to be pretty decisive with getting rid of things. Um, weeding is a huge part of the of the archival process. So they're like two separate worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as creating an archive implies active. You know, you're actively building it. Hoarding is maybe more passive. One can be right for different individuals. You know, one doesn't have to be better than the other, but just very different types of activities. You know. Yeah, and talking about hoarding and talking about 
building an archive, I feel like the artist has a weird position in the middle. Absolutely. Like, cause so we're sitting in my studio, which is now part of the house. But when I had like a proper studio that I paid money to rent, if I saw something on the street, I just pick it up. And I think the big difference is you have this like faith, like this belief that this wrench will become more meaningful at some point in the future. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it on the shelf along with all these other objects I picked up off the sidewalk because my installation art might need this someday. And it's, it's like a weird faith in objects. Exactly right. It's like this middle ground of not being able to articulate the logic around the collection, but knowing that it has one, believing that it has one. There's a great um, Amy Sulman lecture about art supplies and like the deliciousness of collecting these tools that artists use that you may never really um, run through a tube of a certain color or even open it, but you need to have the option. You need to, you need to have the the kind of full arsenal at your at your disposal, and and that gets even weirder with uh, stuff that isn't directly you know, an art object. So for example, I had this like blue plastic tarp that I found on the street that I could not get rid of because of the color and because of the timber of it. And and I never used it in like a Getty Saboni type application of making it its own art object, but I but I couldn't get rid of it for seven or eight years. And and it just stuck around, you know. Um and what and what is that? Uh yeah. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> and it's that, that's kind of like that, yeah, it's that understanding that objects have lives that we don't understand is really satisfying and delicious to me, like experiencing something that has gone through weather. I'm looking at the, you know, fence outside of your home and like reading the patterns of rust on it and thinking about how that's a condition that, you know, artists record. But when we're doing it, you know, it doesn't. Sometimes it takes 50 years, but ideally uh, we get to it a little bit faster. Um. <laughs> I, I have a immediate impulse to edit all the times you say delicious and just put that in a file folder. Delicious, delicious, <laughs> delicious. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is a consumption though, right? It is a desire to keep something around and have the, it's like a sensory thing to have these objects take up space, whether or not you're manifesting your own practice with them later. someone who doesn't have an art practice I find this fascinating like is it is it a gut feeling like when you see an object do you just have the feeling or is it a little more of like a logical process like oh I'm working on this project this might fit into that in like a later iteration or a later version of the series or is it simply that's a really cool color have you ever played the game in a doctor's office? Maybe when you were younger, there is like a highlights magazine with mazes in it and you trace your finger to find the path and your finger finds it a little bit faster than your eyes do. It's like that. Mm. It's like, you know, and maybe your brain catches up a split second later or it never does, but you you know, there's a certainty to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. It sounds like uh, being really in tune with like your inner voice, right? Like your instincts, like really leaning into that pretty hard and following it. There's a lot of trust in that too, right? Especially depending on your studio rent. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the size of your car, yeah. uh, the width of the yes. stairwell, the I, door frame. <laughs> exactly right. I used to joke that, uh, well, it wasn't really a joke that I created paintings based on the scale of my car, based <laughs> on what would fit. It was, you could fit um, 43 and a quarter inches. That was the maximum dimension <laughs> of one side. <laughs> At uh, Union Hall, I had this solo painting show. The 36 by 36 paintings fit in the car. The 48 by 48 had to rent a U-Haul. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. You realize how uh, how nice it is to work small. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm also super interested. So when I was deciding what to do with my life as a teenager, which I think we're all asked to do far too early, I made a decision to go to art school rather than to go to school for conservation. And something that's always fascinated me is, um, or are kind of philosophies around conservation, especially now in the digital age, and how an archivist and an artist might have different philosophies around authenticity and conservation. There was this New Yorker article in 2015 called uh, Turning Off the Rothkos, and it was about how Harvard University had these giant eight foot by, you know, 20 foot Rothko paintings that had originally been installed in a dining hall and someone had written their name on them and there had been food and there had been light damage because they were beautiful and the windows were kept open. And instead of doing any kind of physical application to bring them back to their original color um, and tenor and texture, they used projection. And it's one of my favorite conservation projects to think about because, you know, you get to keep both. And I wonder about your experiences with a kind of authenticity and preservation and especially when that kind of changes the nature of an object. Authenticity in archives is a really fascinating subject, um, especially when you bring kind of digital elements into it. I worked in the museum world for a little while and was part of uh, kind of a project to preserve time-based media artworks at an organization, which tend to be really complex. They include audiovisual elements. Sometimes they can be huge installation pieces that have like physical elements, digital elements, projections, moving pieces, you know, all of all of the things. And um, they're notoriously hard for, for uh, museums to preserve and to install because they have all of these different elements. Then you add on top of that how quickly digital technology changes. And you know, if if a piece relied on like an old school CRT monitor, can you find a CRT monitor that works well enough to replicate the original? And so. Um, Often what museums and archivists as well will start to look at is what is the artist's intention? Mm -hmm. So how do we document this piece as well as we possibly can and capture that artist's intention so that when it's installed again or put in a gallery that they can be true to that? And that almost becomes more important than replicating the original. If you can kind of pull all the guts out of a CRT monitor and project it digitally and just have that representation, as long as it fits the original artist's intention, like that's an option. It's like a fascinating area and one that I think is just beginning to be researched and figured out. So I'm really curious, like in 20 years, where are archives and museums going to be on this issue of 
you know, how to handle artworks that incorporate kind of digital elements, especially as we get more and more, you know, types of digital technology involved in these and the file sizes get bigger and bigger and bigger and harder to preserve and maintain. I think about the uh, MoMA Nemjin Pike retrospective uh, specifically with the uh, I read a great article about, which is kind of the the counterpoint to the Rothko uh, strategy, and it, it was um, untitled piano, and it had a lot of these like cathode ray monitors from the sixties and seventies, and they did decide to yeah gut it, turn turn the sound into MP3 from the kind of floppy disk player piano element, and just kind of hide the digitize. Working with experts, working with folks to to make sure that the experience was the same, but it is it is different. Yeah. 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 It, it changes the original experience, but like, yeah, what's that original intention and in trying to capture that? And David, you're coming from kind of the, an experience this podcast of- podcast is this, Liz? <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I, I guess my style is, I guess my style is collaborative. <laughs> Because I, well, we have, you know, we have three like entirely different minds here. We got to use them all. <laughs> But I think about now and all right, I'll make it about me and my capacity as a, you know, right now I am an advocate uh, for artists at Kelly Strayhorn Theater, which is focused on ephemeral, um, you know, kind of ephemeral in the sense that it's performance work um, and time based work and our documentation while we you know, while we do our best, it is never the same thing as being in the theater or in the that kind of black box space at the time that the performers are there with you. So I think about, yeah, I think a lot about how to how to describe the intent of an artist and and keep an archive of that that then carries some ghost of the original experience. The other day when we were talking, you were telling us about this fascinating practice that you have of taking old family photos Mm -hmm. and kind of intentionally painting over them or making them into something new. That's something that I had like a physical reaction to as an archivist. I was like, oh, but in like a good way, like it challenged my ideas about what you do with old family photos or old photos. And in a way, it's it's like an intentional omission. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that project. Yeah, and Kate, I brought you one if you want to take a look. Yeah, so, no, I'd love to. Um, for the listeners, I brought, it's a uh, Kodak print, color print from 1989, the year I was born. It originally was a photograph of um, Hans Christian Andersen's house. Uh, I was born in Denmark, and I've taken uh, oil paint, this kind of really verdant green color, and just mopped out the identifying characteristics of the image, which ends up being, in this case, most of the image. And this is something that I started this project in 2012, 2013. I'm still working on the project, and they are the original prints. They have not been scanned. I don't scan them ahead of time. And my impulse around doing this, I think, was originally a compositional one. I was interested in the fact that family photographs are often just bad, um, compositionally, right? Like, 
I noticed this pattern of the central figure of the photograph often being a cake because it's at a birthday party or it's at a celebration of some kind and you have these kind of figures gathered around but the real focus of the image like geometrically is the cake Uh, and what would happen if I removed everything but the cake so it started formal but now as you know family relationships evolve and get more complicated as you're older certain uh, folks in my family have passed this omission um, transformation means something a little different and is a little more uh, difficult frankly to do but i continue to do it well i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about kind of the emotional journey you take when you you know pull up a photograph and you decide you're going to alter it. Since it's now, wow, now a 10-year project, uh, in the beginning, you know, I was 23. And so having had grown up in a in a really quite stable and large family where everybody was getting along, there was less of an, an emotional component to erasing those moments where everything was kind of in its Genesis and working out and my cousins and I were all five and six years old and you know um, there was like a a tactile satisfaction to the process and feeling like I was preserving these in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be preserved I mean they were they were not in shoeboxes they were in watertight Tupperware thank you dad but you know still kind of sitting in the back of a cabinet or in the basement or in a living room closet, this idea that maybe if, you know, there were a fire, you would kind of run for them, but not interacted with in any kind of important way and feeling like I was uh, walking this line of like, yes, I'm, I'm destroying the original intent, perhaps, but now the image has a different place. Now that I'm in my mid 30s and you know certain family relationships have broken down certain people have passed I'm like working through those relationships as I'm it's more of a tracing than an obfuscation it's like I'm tracing the silhouette of this person who is no longer around and then the image does end up being kind of like a ghost or a trace and that's reflective of what the relationship is like now so it's different yeah if I may maybe I can also ask how does your family feel about the practice. <laughs> I think you'd have to, it would depend on which member of the family you asked, but they were supportive enough to give me the originals, so um, can't take it back now. There was a process of like, no, Elizabeth, you can't touch this one. And I'm Elizabeth if I'm in trouble, so that's a, that's a stern. <laughs> like these are, there are, there were a few that that I was not given access to, but by and large, I ha- the archive was was given to me, yeah. You also have a small sculpture on the table. Yes. There is a ceramic strawberry that, unlike uh, real strawberries, is this kind of sickly turquoise color, and it has a paper like stem and leaf structure attached to it. This is by Andrew Allison, and it is sitting on a tile that I nicked from my friend's uh, vestibule. Uh, And you'll see this tile around a lot in Pittsburgh. It's this square blue kind of beautiful periwinkle color tile that's been chipped away by age and um, people like me kind of rustling it around. But this is an example of just one of the things I've collected from friends who make stuff. Is it the fact that friends made it that makes you want to have it? That's I think that's an impossible question to answer. I don't think I can divorce. I don't think I can divorce it from its origin. 
would I be as interested if I found it in a fair or in a booth with other exciting things? I don't know. Is this part of a kind of a larger collection of small sculptures that you have? I primarily collect two-dimensional media, and the sculptures that I collect are are generally small. But I think favorite highlights of my collection, I have a painting of muddy footprints in snow by my high school art teacher, Bill Kustra, who is still going strong and playing soccer. He's now well into his 70s. I have a Susu painting. Um, Susu's a kind of well-known artist uh, who got her start in Pittsburgh, who does these really incredible oil paintings through silk mesh and the way that the medium is mixed the paintings maintain this kind of anti-gravity like almost uh, rug hooked quality to them and that's of a it's actually a copy of a van gogh chair painting i have a pen and ink drawing by a woman named Audra Wist. It's Britney Spears crying from the Lucky video, but she's completely unrecognizable as this kind of like monstrous black on white series of teeth. I collect things based on aesthetic, based on their formal qualities, but all of them really tend to be from folks that I've had some kind of personal relationship to. Are they uh, kind of reminders of that relationship? I think I collect stuff because I, I like how it looks or I want it to affect my practice in in a way and a lot of that is an is a kind of aesthetic formal like handling way like how does this person handle mater- handle material how does this person make marks how does this person digest the images or the media around them and make it into something that is their own signature if i like that process then i then i want to keep it talked about this a little bit but like what's your reason for collecting oh I want to be reminded that I exist uh (laughs) and you know I uh, like that that sounds glib but I think it gets to something you want you want a record of your of your personal history and um some folks decide to keep that quite minimal and and clean and don't need a kind of material manifestation of those moments but i but i want to be able to trace the path and my grandmother had a master's in library science and was very much into documenting our family tree and i think that instinct is part of me wanting a record of of my experiences and the things that i felt connected to and the people i felt connected to but I'm fascinated by folks who kind of purge those things too. Like someone who, you know, if they if they no longer have a lover, they kind of burn their stuff. Like, what is that impulse? And because I don't have it, um, so I'm fascinated by the opposite side. Like, what artists get rid of when you when you look at something you made five years ago and you cannot stand it and you put it out on the curb. Like, what is that?
Thanks for listening to the Bright Archives podcast. This episode was produced by Catherine and Dave, and Dave made the sound design and music. Are you a collector or are you a purger? And have you backed up your personal archive lately? Leave us a comment, let us know. And then please go back up the photos on your phone. We'll be back next month with more on why we collect. See you next time.